The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Thanks so much for joining us today. As I hope you're enjoying your 4th of July weekend, celebrating with friends and family. We are just going to continue to plug away through the Gospel of Luke. We actually turn a page into Luke chapter 14 today. If you've got Bibles, Luke 14, 1 through 11 is where we will be. If you were with us last week, we saw that Jesus received a warning from a group of Pharisees. We're not sure if that warning was with good intentions or poor intentions, but they said, you need to get out of Dodge because Herod is coming after you. Jesus, not concerned about Herod, not concerned really about anything, knowing what his final destination is, he apparently, instead of running, decides to go to lunch with one of these Pharisees. And where we pick up in Luke chapter 14 will be the third time that Jesus, in the gospel of Luke, chose to go eat, dine with a Pharisee in their home. Now, the Pharisees are absolutely trying to get Jesus out of the way but he still goes to the house of a prominent Pharisee and chooses to eat with him. The two previous times in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus decided to do this, it went horribly. And so we can kind of have a foreshadowing of how this lunch will go as well, but it's important that we read these 11 verses and see how much God, God our Heavenly Father, cares about the heart. And he gives us some life lessons about our heart, things we need to learn, things we need to apply. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 14, verse 1, it says this, one Sabbath, so we're assuming right after they were, he was told to leave, one Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. That's an interesting phrase. We'll get to it in a moment. First of all, he's in the home of a prominent Pharisee. Most likely, this Pharisee is the ruler of the synagogue in which Jesus worshiped on that Sabbath day. Okay, it's most likely the, the leader of it could have possibly been, this word is so strong, could have possibly been a member of the Sanhedrin. There were 72 ruling members on the Sanhedrin. They, they oversaw all of Jewish life leading from Jerusalem. This could have been one of those Pharisees. We're not sure because we don't have the name, but either way, This Pharisee, the house that they're in, has Pharisees underneath him, and they all have one intention on this day. They're watching Jesus. They're not watching him to learn. They're watching to trap him. They are looking intently at how he does everything. That word there actually means to scrutinize. Scrutinize. Their goal is to catch Jesus doing something wrong while he dines in this house. But Jesus knows this. And not only does he know this, he knows the hearts of those that he's dining with. And so he jumps into action. Luke chapter 14, verse 2. There in front of him, in front of Jesus, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Okay, medically today we'd call this edema. Lots of excess fluid in the body. We have ways to manage this today. 2,000 years ago, this was a death sentence. It means your heart or liver have stopped functioning. You are in organ failure. Without a miracle, you are not going to make it. And this man looks sick. 
he is probably just one of the hundreds who are following Jesus in hopes that Jesus can do something about his infirmity. We don't think he was planted there by the Pharisees, but he might have been just to catch Jesus doing the unthinkable on the Sabbath, healing someone who is dead without the intervention of God. But Jesus sees this man and he jumps into action. He asks a question in verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I, I, I know what I'm about to do. I'm going to step in and show mercy to this man. I know what I'm going to do, but I want to ask you first, would this be okay in God's eyes if I healed him? He asked the question, the religious leaders knowing that their tradition, not the Bible, their tradition says you are not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Now, the Bible says you can't work on the Sabbath. It doesn't say anything about healing. But the oral traditions have become such that even healing on the Sabbath is frowned upon. And Jesus wants to know, is God's heart to help people, to show mercy, even the logic involved in this, that, I, that you would see someone in need and not do something because it's the wrong day of the week, do you feel like this is what God wants? And we know what God wants most. He wants his glory. That, that's what he wants. And his glory will be shown through the healing of this man. But the Pharisees, they, they can't answer Jesus' question. Is it right or wrong to heal? So they plead the fifth. They, they remain silent because they cannot answer yes or no without looking bad. If they say yes, it's lawful, then they're going against their own traditions. If they say no, then they're going against mercy. They have no recourse here. Have you ever been stuck like that? Someone, just, someone literally just has you. you. You start maybe three times to answer, oh, well, it's, a, it's, it's a tough situation. And then you finally just go, I will stop talking now. There's nothing that I can possibly say that's going to make me look good. So I'll just sit here quietly and see what happens next. Luke chapter 14, verse 4. They remain silent. So Jesus, taking hold of the man, he healed him. This guy didn't have much time left on this earth, but Jesus, with one touch, heals him. Whatever organ was failing, is healed, restored. The extra fluid is gone. And then Jesus sent him on his way. I love this. Jesus knows the crossfire that's coming next and doesn't want this man to be caught in it. So healed, he says, now you just go. Go live and prosper and have a great life. You do not want to be here because I know what these people are trying to do. They're trying to trap me. But Jesus asked them another question. Before they even have a chance to respond, the guy's gone, he's healed, he's great. They ask him another question, Luke chapter 14, 5 and 6. Then, they, then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately go pull 
that child or ox out of the well? Verse 6, they had nothing to say. It's a great question. In fact, it's a little too good of a question. And some of the earliest manuscripts, you have to understand that the way we get the Bible is through the oldest possible document that we can find. Uh, that We see that as being closest to the author's actual writing of that document. And so there's some old documents that replace the word child with donkey. So if you had a donkey or an ox that fell into the well on the Sabbath, would you not immediately go pull that donkey or ox out? That, that actually makes more sense to me. Because... If your child falls in a well, you don't care what day it is. Okay, that, that's, that's too big of a question. It makes much more sense that Jesus is actually posing a moral conundrum. It's the Sabbath, you're not supposed to work. You've got an animal that falls in the well. Are you super worried about the animal? Probably not. Are you worried about that animal tainting your water for the next however long because you've got a bloated carcass floating in your well? Yes. What do you do? Do you pull it out? Do you save your water supply? Do you try to save the animal? Or do you honor God by doing nothing? And Jesus' question is, once again, so difficult because they know what they would do. Of course they would go pull the animal out of the well. They know that. But they also know that in doing so, they would be breaking their tradition. And Jesus has them, so they remain completely silent what Jesus is trying to illustrate here is that for these Pharisees, they have all these rules. They have all these rules that allow them to have power over people. But Jesus is showing that their heavenly father, who has much more power, much more governing rule, he uses his power and his governing rule to show mercy. That's what God does. That's why our God is for us. And these religious leaders, they've lost that. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they're trying to trap him. And I have, by healing this man, done nothing different than you would do in the same situation. There's a need. There's an immediate concern. You respond. You're not breaking the law. You're not doing anything wrong. How is healing this man wrong? And when it says they were silent there at the end of verse 6, that literally means they were not able to answer. They didn't have a response. Nothing they could say would matter. So they just remained silent. I, I hope, I ask you to do this a lot, especially within the Gospels, I hope you're sitting at this lunch and feeling the awkwardness of it at this point. Jesus has just healed a man. That's awesome. Some people are probably celebrating that. There's been two questions. The religious leaders, the guys that are supposed to have all the answers, have not uttered a word yet. They've had to remain silent because Jesus has trapped them so perfectly. The hunted becomes the hunter. Jesus is flipping the script on them, and he's doing it beautifully. Now, Jesus, with all the momentum... He looks and he sees something else that he can illustrate. You have this religious pride that won't allow you to answer my questions. Now, now I want to address your social pride. Jesus looks out at this luncheon and 
he realizes that there are some other people, probably other Pharisees, who are fighting over which seat they'll have at the table. In the first century, especially in Jewish culture, tables were shaped in a U formation. The head, two legs coming down. The host and or the guest of honor would sit at the very center, the very top of the U. Whoever sat to that person's right would be the second most influential or important person. That person's left would be the third, so on and so forth, all the way down the table. And Jesus recognizes that there's people fighting for those coveted seats. In fact, it'll just be in a few weeks that James and John, two of his closest disciples, will come to Jesus and say, um, when your kingdom comes, can we sit at your right and left? They're wanting the second and third most important seats at the table. This is something that a lot of people naturally desire. And Jesus looks out at this and he goes, oh, oh, Pharisees, your hearts are so off. Luke chapter 14, verse 7. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them a parable. He looked out and saw how people were jockeying for seats that they didn't belong in. Here's what he says, verses 8 through 11. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. You don't know. You don't know who's coming. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then, obviously humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So the seat you maybe were supposed to have will have been taken by someone else. You go to the very end of the table, verse 10. But when you're invited, instead, take the lowest place so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. This is where you belong. The host does this for you. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Church, this is just good life advice. This is just good truth to allow to sink in to the way that you live your life. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 says, Do not exalt yourself in the presence of kings, and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before the nobles. Simple. Instead of being publicly demoted because of your arrogance and your pride, choose to be publicly promoted because of your humility. Simple truth, great life lessons, I believe, that resonate in all the areas of our life. Try, right now, honestly, take a moment. Try to think of a scenario where this is not good, solid truth. In what area would you, promoting yourself out of pride and arrogance, ever, ever lead to your betterment? But instead, coming in humble confident and knowing that the person in charge will see you for who you are and give you your just due. 
How much better is that for every single area of your life? If we choose to act arrogantly, God will most definitely bring someone along to humble us. But if we choose a path of humility, God promises, promises that we will be exalted. And that's a promise that I'm willing to take to the bank. Self-seeking will cause embarrassment while humility will lead to honor. The Pharisees, they missed this point. They stood there on this day where Jesus is just rapid fire. And we'll see some more next week. He's, he's not done. We'll see some more next week of how these Pharisees just continue to fail and how their hearts have become so far from God. Their pride and their arrogance, both spiritually and socially, it has left them just miles away from him. And on this day, they stand there silenced, literally unable to answer by a carpenter's son, by the one they hope will leave town. They have nothing to say because they're wrong. And I know this, this may sound crazy, and it, it's absolutely backwards from what the world teaches us, but the reason it sounds crazy and it looks backwards is because it is. God doesn't look at the outside. He doesn't look at your position, your power, your wealth, your accolades. Those things matter nothing to him. He looks at your heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. You're not evaluated by God, by how much money you have, by the car you drive, by your position at work, by how great your family might be. God doesn't look at those things. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And on this day, Jesus, knowing the heart's of the Pharisees, he says, no. You must be humbled. You must see the truth. Jesus silenced his would-be accusers by pointing out two areas of pride in their life, two heart conditions. He, he just healed, most likely, a heart condition, a literal heart condition in the man with edema. He just healed that, and now he wants to spiritually exercise the same healing in the hearts of the Pharisees, if they would simply be willing to listen, if they'd simply be willing to humble themselves. Their spiritual pride, terrible. And here's what spiritual pride is. It's not just for Pharisees, it's, it's for all of us. Spiritual pride is believing that God owes you something just because of who you are. Can I say this with some tact? You're not special. You're loved. You're created in the image of God. You're worthy of him giving up the life of his own son. But those are not things that you've done. That's the grace that you've been shown. 
God doesn't owe you anything. But instead, because of his amazing grace, he moves and he works and he acts in accordance with your good. That's him, not you. And there's so many who are like the Pharisees that believe that that God owes them something because of what you've done. And that's just not how it works. And these Pharisees, they lorded that over the people that they led and Jesus couldn't handle it. And so he starts to tear down that spiritual pride. And then, because that went so well, he goes, now let's talk about your social pride, your need to be exalted and placed in positions of honor. Social pride is believing that others owe you something just because of who you are. That's that's not true either. Jesus says, take the lowest seat. Go ahead, be, be the servant of all. And then when my kingdom comes, you you will be exalted. That's my promise. You'll be exalted by being humble. Pride is a dangerous heart condition. Dangerous, church. And it's one that Jesus wants to address. And it's for this reason, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. Maybe you've heard it this way, pride comes before the fall. That's exactly what this means. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Now, we don't use the word haughty very often, but it means arrogance or grandeur. An arrogant spirit. A spirit that's bigger than it should be. A belief, a pride that is not real comes before a fall. I I think if we would be flies on the wall in this luncheon. We would learn valuable, valuable truths that Jesus wants us all to know. And I think if we were to glean that truth, we would want to ask a few questions or we would want to ask the Lord to come and move in some certain ways. For instance, I think it'd be very humble of us to say, Lord, come search me. Search me for areas in my life that are riddled with pride, whether that's social pride, whether that's spiritual pride, whether that's any kind of pride, Lord, come and search me. Show me those areas. And then, and then Lord, help me to renounce those. Help me to humble myself before you. Lord, help me see my need for you. No longer trusting in my own strength, in my own goodness, but in you, Lord, give me faith. And Lord, unlike the Pharisees who on this day were silent, help me today to not be silent in response to what you're teaching me. Instead, show me where I need to move. Show me where I need to grow. Show me where I need to be humbled. And I believe, church, that when we do that, when we do that before the Lord, he will move. And he will show us those areas of pride that are just sneaking in. And I believe that in light of who he is, when we ask him to move, when we ask him to speak into our lives, we will 
be humbled in his presence. And then he'll look at our heart and say, now, now child, I can use you. I can move and work. We, we can relate. And he does that because he loves us. So Father, I pray today that as you speak to our hearts, as you examine our lives, we would see the areas of pride that we need to renounce. We would be encouraged by your Holy Spirit to know that truth, that you, Lord, would move, humbling us, making us more like you, so that, Lord, you might be more glorified. We love you. We know that you have great things in store for us. So come and examine our hearts now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.